Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. This week's guest is Allison Herring, a researcher who has begun a project called In Search of the Powells, a Civil War project centering on the papers of one Southern family. So welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm a fan of the podcast. It's been a lot of fun to listen to other people who transcribe women's letters just like me. And even though you can't hear me, I'm geeking out as much about what you all are talking about as you all are. Um, so this is fun. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I found you on Twitter and I saw your website and I was like, this seems like a person who has who shares our enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, I've probably transcribed three or 400 of the Powell women's letters so far. And so if each one of them is about four pages, that's at least a thousand well over a thousand pages so far. Yeah. So I've uh, gotten to know them pretty well and I've I've done it a lot. So I I did see from your website that your professional background is actually in accounting and auditing. So how did this happen? How did you discover this family? First, one thing that's really interesting to point out is the accounting profession slash audit. So I did audit, meaning I audited publicly traded companies for a big four public accounting firm and the history profession have a fair amount in common. Uh, Both are backwards looking at transactions or events that have already happened. Both are focused on heavily on the evidence, like what evidence exists to support this. You're trying to evaluate information that's been presented to you that may or may not be accurate um, or may or may not be true. Both require a fair amount of skepticism. So they have a lot, and you, you when you're presented with evidence, you're, you can't just take it at face value. You have to perform procedures on it to determine how reliable is this information and how does it fit into the greater context. And so audit is very similar history. So I learned of these papers when I was living in Dallas. I had had a family tragedy happen. We lost five immediate family members. I'm sorry, three family members across five months. And I had just, oh, thank you. And I had just moved to Dallas. So I didn't have uh, the support system that you would normally have for a compounding loss like that. And I think the move made it worse. You know, I didn't have close friends yet or Um, a church that was going to support me. So I didn't, and I was struggling to make friends because I didn't have normal answers to small talk questions at that time. And so at about that time, William and Mary had some alumni in Dallas who held an event and I was accepting all invitations. I needed friends. So I went to the event and they were hosting an event to teach about this transcription project that SWEM library at William and Mary had, where they had uploaded their civil rights archive online and the civil war archives online for the 150th and 50th anniversaries of each. And I thought, all right, I can sign up for this and I can do this from my couch until the worst of the grief passes. This seemed like a better use of my time than finding the end of Netflix. So (laughs) I could participate in something. And the job that I was doing at the time was we were, our firm was going paperless. Um, we were deploying a software that was a, representing a huge change. So to participate in the digitization of this and the transcription of these documents fit well with what I was doing professionally at the time. And so ultimately, I was transcribing maybe one letter a week on the weekends. It's just something to do, get my head out of myself. And I transcribed my first letter from Hattie Lee Powell. She's one of the daughters. And she was very compelling. Her letter just stood out from all the others that I had transcribed. And she was going through the very similar circumstances to me. She was going through a compounding loss. She lost several family members. She, and she was, had lost her home and her career. And she was enduring this by herself among strangers. And so were her sisters. 
And so the whole family were separated during the war, which is why there's such a huge collection of their letters because that's how they stayed in touch for four years. So no two of them were together. So that was compelling to me. I thought, oh, here's somebody who gets it. Like she gets it. Yeah. And I understood what she was writing about. And I felt like if I, instead of picking some random letter every week, if I stick with her, I'm going to learn her handwriting. I'm going to learn the context of what she's writing at. And my transcriptions are going to be more fun. They're probably going to be more accurate and far more you know, interesting. And, and then it became like reading a novel. Maybe you see this too, when you're transcribing these letters, you get to know these people and you know, you want to know, is the brother missing? Is he dead or alive? You know, what happens with the boyfriend? Does that work out or not? And who are these people? <laughs> Where are they when they're writing these letters? And so I just kept going. It's a comment somebody on your podcast made a couple of episodes ago. She said, I just kept going and I identified with that. Uh, so that's how it started. And it just grew from there. It's interesting how these pet projects start with like when you find that personal connection to it. But so that's a really cool story. Uh, did you sort of read history on your own before this? Or is this really thrown you into it? It threw me into it. I mean, I was always a I loved studying it. We grew up in Arkansas and my family took trips to Virginia every year. So, and when we did that, we would visit these historic sites and, and museums. And so I really enjoyed that. And I loved my history classes when I was in middle school and high school. And I on purpose took history classes in college because I enjoyed it. So I had I'd always been drawn to it, but had pursued accounting as a career. So I never dreamed that I would do something like this. It just was something that happened. It just fell out of the sky and is rooted in trauma, but has been a positive way to use my time. So I've gotten to know this phenomenal Southern family. Yeah. And fortunately, um, one of the families that they enslaved, I've been able to get to know them too. And that's something that I appreciate about these women's letters. They mentioned the enslaved. Mm -hmm. They will talk about what they're doing during the day or the husband is visiting um, or a baby was born last night. And so there's details about their lives that get recorded in these women's letters. And it's interesting, the Powell men don't mention the enslaved very often. I wonder if it's a domestic thing. Yeah, I think I think it goes hand in hand with managing the household, which tells you a little bit about the gender roles of the time and the social roles of the time. But I've 100% noticed the same thing. Mm -hmm. If you want to find out more about what the slaves are doing at a household, you've got to look at the white women's yes. letters. <laughs> yes, yes fortunate that she, that they did write about the enslaved as much as they did and that those letters survive so that we can piece, piece them together too. Tell me a little bit more about the Powells now that you've followed that lead and learned more about this family. They were an unconventional bunch. We'll see if you agree. I think they were, they kind of challenged what I thought a family was and how people lived in the 19th century. So a very high level overview is you know, mom and dad Powell, Selena and Charles got married in 1830. And so that's where my timeline begins. And they were living in Loudoun County, Virginia for a couple of years. And then they decided let's go to Louisville, Kentucky. And so they did in the 1830s. So they hauled out the national road and took a steamboat out to Kentucky. And they lived there for a couple of years and decided, nope, let's go back. So they came right back to Loudoun County, lived literally across the road from the, where the farm was, where they were living before. Lived there for a couple more years, then decided let's go to Leesburg, Virginia, which is in the same county. So then they moved to Leesburg for several years, and then they decided let's go to Henry, Illinois. And they did. So then they sold the people that they enslaved, hauled out to Henry, Illinois, lived there for a couple of years, decided now nah, let's go back to Virginia again. I mean, I just felt like they're constantly on the move and they're hmm. constantly pivoting in their life. And I think so when they moved back to Virginia, they decided to open a boarding school for girls in of all places on the eve of the Civil War, Winchester, which is not 
where you would want to open a school for girls on the eve of the Civil War, because since you're an 18th century person, Winchester changed hands the most number of times. It was a war zone for wow. four years. So they opened the school. It was successful. But then the numbers of the elite women were starting to drop. And so then they were looking to move west again. They were looking to go to my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. Huh. But then the war hit. And then when they fled Winchester, and I would have thought a 19th century family would have hunkered down on a farm somewhere, go to your aunt and uncle's. It's not what they did. They split across the state and lived separated from one another for the four, I guess for the three years, they lived the first year up in Winchester. The women lived on their own and they supported themselves like a Jane Eyre in a war. They got hired by these families who could afford to hire a woman and have her work in the household and teach the young children in the household. Sometimes if there was enough children in the neighborhood, one of the Powell daughters would form a school because she knew how to do that because she had been running, helping run this boarding school in Winchester and the older daughters were teaching in the school. So they were not passive or just hanging out. They were actively participating and teaching. So they knew how to do this. And they didn't just stay in one place during the war. You'd think you'd find a place that's decently comfortable and just stay there, but they wouldn't. They would pick up and move and go somewhere else for the next year and then pick up and move and, and go somewhere else. And so they were just constantly on the move. And it just struck me that this felt different from what I thought a woman's life would have been in the 19th century, particularly during the war. How does it change the way you think about Civil War history? Because generally, when people think of women in the Civil War, sort of the gone with the wind type narrative pops up a lot. So what has it taught you about that time? I think that at least for the Powells, they were not as passive as I would have thought they would have been. Um, Now, some of their cousins had an experience that it mirrors what I would have assumed where they hunker down on a farm and endure the circumstances going on around them, but they can't control as best as they can. Maybe what helped the Powells was they, they didn't own any property. So they had no, they didn't have anywhere to hunker down. So they had to flee. Their income dried up when the school stopped operating because nobody wants to send their daughter to a school in a war zone and nor should you. So their income dried up and they couldn't afford the rent on the building. I'm confident that's a big reason why they fled. It wasn't just fear of the conflict. It was, well, financially, we can't pull this off anymore because their school still stands in Winchester. It's a huge building. Oh, cool. Every place the Powells lived so far still stands. It's like they were a 19th century good luck charm. If you took in a Powell in the Civil War, like your house is still standing. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the pieces of this was when I moved back to Virginia from Dallas, I wanted to know where Hattie was physically because I really, I didn't know. She didn't leave enough clues. So that took an enormous amount of effort. I frankly had to switch over to genealogy of the family she was living with. We sat together and was able to realize, oh, she was in Brunswick County. And then later she was in Powhatan County and come to find out both homes are still standing. The one in Brunswick County is still owned by the same family that took her in as a war refugee during the war. So yeah, reaching out to them was big because when I gave them copies, one of the things I do is I When I transcribe the letters, I'll put them together in a book and hand this book over with the permission of William and Mary to the people who live and work on these properties today so they can have an account of their house during the war that they would otherwise never know about because it was written down by a refugee teacher that I don't know how you would ever know you had a refugee teacher at this house. And so with them, it was not just the history of the home that they own. It was their family that she's recording. Wow. This project lives, it's among the living. (laughs) <laughs> Very much. I don't, it, I'm not just purely in the archives. I'm out in these counties, meeting the people who live and work in these spaces today and letting them know that these papers exist and they record an account of what happened there. 
Um, and they ought to know. Are a lot of them museums now, or are they still houses people live in for the most part? Still houses people live in. So the school in Winchester is a bit, has been divided into two businesses. One part's a law office. The other part is a financial management. And I was able to go in and see them. They, they let me come in on a Friday and the two companies took me around in the spaces. The attics were interesting. The rooms where the girls slept up in the attics are still there. And there are these little rooms with these little doors. And they had wondered, what is this up here? Why are there all these little rooms with these doors? And I thought, I mean, I hesitate to think about these girls sleeping up here in this attic, but I think that that's what this was. I think this was part of the dorm because they had a lot of girls in that house. Um, And the home in Powhatan County is still lived in. And the guy who owns it, his family bought it from the people who lived there in 1880. So it's been in his family since the 1880s. Um, and then in the, the Tucker home down in Brunswick County is not lived in anymore. It's in great shape though, structurally, uh, it's not gonna fall down. They built these to last and they still farm that property. So they're on the property every day, uh, but they no longer live in the home. You're creating sort of a book to give to these people. Are you planning on publishing this into a book eventually? Yes. So this will be a nonfiction account of the Powells. And I think right now my plan and the manuscript that I have that I'm working on right now includes the adventures that I have in piecing this together and the interaction. That's cool. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. That's the piece. So I've spoken publicly about this a few times when I get asked, including this podcast. And it does seem like when I'm talking to the public, the piece that they're often the most interested in is not just the history itself, but the the adventures that I have and the work that I do when I go and I visit these sites and I interact with the people that are there today. And how was I able to piece together Ariana, this enslaved woman and her family, as much as what actually got pieced together. So the process and the end result will be a nonfiction account. So it'll just come down to, is it all one book? Is there a pre-war antebellum and then a war version and then a post-war? Because the papers stretch the 19th, the whole 19th century into the early 20th. It's a huge, it's about 700 items wow. and about 3,600 pages. So it's, it's big because a big piece of this is trying, and I've heard you talk about this, trying to identify all of these people that are mentioned in these papers. It's, I'm just not okay with somebody being mentioned and moving on. Like that was a person. Yes. And so I, I've hit the jackpot because the Leesburg letters are all 1848 and 49. So right around a census year, thank God. So I can just. <laughs> download. I've got the whole Leesburg census for 1850 in an Excel spreadsheet so that I can use it a little bit more easily to identify who these people were. And then the church records are huge. The church records that are at the Thomas Balch library in Leesburg, um, the baptism, the marriage and the burial records, and even just the communicant records um, helped me identify who the, like, who was Maria, whose dad was Mr. Harrison. I've got to figure out who that was and get her identified, especially the women they don't get identified as much. So it's harder to dig that information up. Yeah. I don't want to leave anybody behind. So to dive into the context of this specific letter, what is going on? (laughs) So this letter is one I picked uh, from 1850. Since your podcast is more late 18th, early 19th, I thought I'd keep you out of the Civil War. Um, (laughs) So this one's from 1850. It was written by Selena Lloyd Powell, who was born in 1807. So she's born of the era and was raised by women from, from your era. And it's a letter to her daughter. So Selena is 43 years old and she's writing to her daughter, Rebecca, who's 19 years old. And she is visiting uh, her grandparents in Alexandria. They lived in Lloyd House in Alexandria, which I think today is the home of the offices of historic Alexandria. And that's when Rebecca is in her element. She loves 
going to Alexandria and she loves the society and she loves uh, spending time with her grandparents and all of the aunts and uncles and cousins. So Selena is writing to her and giving her an update on Leesburg for the week and letting her know, you know, the parties that have been going on, what they've been doing around the house, uh, what the enslaved people have been up to. So we're going to hear some of the names of the enslaved people in here. It's just, it's a slice of life. And that's one of the things that really has been appealing to me about these letters is understanding how these people lived their daily lives. You know, in history classes, we learn about these big events and that's fine. But I was also deeply interested in just what was their, what did they do on a Tuesday? <laughs> how, you know, what, how, you know, what, how did they socialize? What was going on at these parties without the games that we play today or like without TV and Netflix? And I a hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So that's what this letter is going to detail. It's, it's a little slice of life in Leesburg, Virginia in 1850. And I'll just dive in. All right, so the letter was dated uh, January 7th, 1850. So she writes, Leesburg, Monday morning. My dearest child, I know you will be disappointed if you don't get a letter tomorrow. So though it is 10 o'clock, I must try to get one written in and before 11. Saturday, I was busy all day and did not get time to write in the evening. I gave myself a strain that kept me in bed all day yesterday. Today, I am up and better, but not well enough to move about much. I don't know that anything has occurred to interrupt the quiet tenor of our lives since Harriet wrote, except a small company at Mr. Eskridge's last Tuesday and the reading party at Miss Sally's on Friday evening, both which Hattie seemed to think quite agreeable, though not very particularly so. Lloyd went with her to Bell's and your father to Miss Sally's. There has been no one here of evenings, and I don't know that I have been out more than perhaps once to take a little walk. On Friday next, the reading party meets here, and I dare say men will have something amusing to detail. As they don't give much trouble to the lady of the house, no one objects to having them. They come at half past six after taking tea at home. They come in without knocking, and after a little talking, the gentlemen take it by turns and read aloud something which has been previously selected. The ladies have some light little work which does not require much attention and there is talking and laughing now and then. About nine, a waiter of refreshments is handed. Then a little more reading, but that stops before 10 and they get home at about 10 or half past. I think they, if they can keep it up, which they seem disposed to do at present, it will be a very good thing. It promotes sociability at least and approves topics of conversation and perhaps an incentive to reading. Your grandma was to have come in to stay with us on Tuesday last, but the weather turned so cold she was afraid to come out. I hoped she would have come in yesterday, but she did not, and now it is snowing again. So I fear it will be some time before she gets a chance if she waits for the weather to settle. She has recovered from her cold, but suffers from rheumatism after any exposure. Your Aunt Ellen is just as she was and getting quite out of spirits at her long confinement. How is mother? Ask her to send me word if she is much better now than when I was down. Does she move about with less inconvenience? I received the supporter by John. Does mother wear it without any other? I don't find that it supports me sufficiently. Cousin Lucy has another daughter and is quite well. We still have the smallpox amongst us. Mr. Rinker's house, just opposite your father's office, has been shut up some time, and it is said that all his family have it. I don't know whether this is a fact, but he came to the door and told your father he did not want anybody to come in as all his family were sick and keeps his house closely shut up. We are all quite well here. Men seems as well as possible. 
and we have all been remarkably free from cold so far. And here's where she talks about the enslaved. I'll be clear about who these names are. I have not had any servant in Robert's place. Lloyd saws all the wood and Harriet and men clean upstairs so that Lucinda can clean the parlor and we get along very well with puss in the dining room. If Ariana could only assist in the washing, I could do very well indeed with Lucinda and puss, but she cannot. And the washing and ironing takes most of Lucinda's time after the morning. Puss does very well indeed, considering she is a year younger than Charlie. Thank dear father for the nice box of plums. He could not have sent me a more acceptable present. When you feel ready to come home, dear Beck, you must get Edward to look out for someone coming up in the stage with whom you could come when the weather is not too cold, and we will do the same here. I feel very much obliged to Edward for his kind and polite attention to you. Give my love to him and to all at your Uncle Williams. And this is a PS at the bottom that she clearly wrote a little later. Your Uncle George went on to Baltimore with poor Cuthbert last Wednesday and returned on Friday, leaving him at the asylum quite contented. He took a great fancy to the physician at the asylum and he to him. So I do hope he will continue satisfied and be happier than when he was out. He was very unhappy here and very excitable, though not ill-tempered and was easily managed but he would meander about and even Ma became convinced that it was necessary for him to be somewhere where he could be taken care of. Your father and all the children send a great deal of love to you and we all want to see you very much. Give the greatest quantity of love to your grandpa and grandma and all, your devoted mother, S. Powell. There's a lot of information in there about Leesburg and their daily life and the lives of their family members and close friends. You mentioned that at the top of the letter, there's a circled kiss from there's Nina. There's a circled kiss. I missed that. That's right. So Nina was the little girl. She is eight years old when this letter was written and she insists on kissing all of the letters. So most, a lot of the Powell letters from this time period have her kisses on them. And she took it literally when they would say, we send you our love and kisses. She wanted to do that literally. So she would kiss the paper and would insist that her mother had to circle it so that because she was very concerned that somebody wouldn't know where her kiss was. Like, how are they supposed to know? And then if there were multiple people she was kissing, she would kiss it multiple times and her mother had to circle each kiss and label it. And this is all very clear because her mother's in the first couple of times this is happening, she's insisting. Like she's having to explain to somebody why this is. And then she's explaining, when you write back, can you please label the kiss? Because every time we get a letter from you, Nina is crawling in my lap, going <laughs> over the pages. Where's my kiss? And in one of the letters, she explains, well, I guess they think I've had enough kisses. I don't see my kisses in here. So they, so a lot of the letters have these little circles on them labeled that these are Nina's kisses. It's really sweet. That is so sweet. And it's another cool thing with working, like when you see the actual documents, that's something that pops out that you wouldn't get. Yeah. And there really is something special about getting a handwritten letter from someone. And that's one of those things that you can get from that. One thing that stood out to me in this letter was the smallpox that we're still in a pandemic now. And they did not mess around with disease in the 19th century. They lived with death. It was a constant for them. Smallpox, I don't hear about a lot in the letters. It's usually typhoid, a lot of measles. Smallpox, they had figured out the vaccine. And she does mention in another letter that they are vaccinated and that some of the people in the town are being re-vaccinated. Maybe we might call that a booster, but she was saying that she didn't feel like they needed to get that, an, an incremental vaccine. And it's clear that this man did not want this to spread from his house. He's closed up his house and told people don't come here. I did look into this family, they lived. <laughs> They, they survived the smallpox. Um, I got kind of concerned about them. It looks like everybody survived. 
Um, but that was an interesting thing that stood out in, in all of these letters and in this one too, that disease is something that they were constantly fearful of and took very seriously. The section where she says, uh, I received the supporter by John. D- do you know what that is? Is that like a corset? I think it was something akin to a corset. I actually put this on Twitter today because I, I do have a book on women's clothing and I, there's nothing in it yeah. about this. And that book's actually pretty thorough. And I did ask a friend of mine who dresses up and is an interpreter. And so she was not familiar with it. And I put it on Twitter to some women historians who study the history of women's clothing. And we don't know is the quick answer. She sounds unfamiliar with it because she's having to ask her daughter, does mother wear it without any other? Like, she's not sure. How, how do you wear this? So it's clearly something that's new. It could have been a fad in Alexandria that just never took off. So I think it's probably corset related because they use the word corset when they are talking about a corset. So this was different that she calls it a supporter. <laughs> that was relatable. <laughs> yeah. Also like the parties and even just... The, you know, the fact that they're coming over, like what time, you know, half past six and they're not even bothering to knock. They're just coming on in and that the party goes until 10 and what's happening at the party. Now she doesn't go into the level of detail that her daughter does. Her daughter, Hattie has written about a couple of these reading parties about the snickering that goes on the flirting. So I guess there's some poor guy who's actually reading something to the audience and the audience is only mildly interested in that. According to Hattie, they're more interested in the flirting and making eyes at one another and the joking around. And they're trying really hard not to laugh out loud because they don't want the poor guy to think that they're laughing at him. They're just (laughs) laughing at them. And he starts in one instance, he starts reading louder as if like, I really hope they're not (laughs) laughing at me and I'm going to project confidence. (laughs) But so they'll read Shakespeare, uh, Lord Byron, um, Mm and some of the other they go over what it is that they're actually reading. So this is, this is just a social party. This isn't supposed to be like an educational party or anything. I mean, no, it's sort no. of, she's saying that it might encourage people to read, but. This one didn't get as out of hand as others. You know, the young people would have these kissing parties. They called them bussery bees, which I learned bus is an 18th century word for kissing. <laughs> kind of like a spelling bee or a quilting bee. They called it a bussery bee. And it was just an excuse for the young people to get together and figure out ways to like socially acceptably ways to kiss each other. <laughs> with these games that they would play (laughs) make spin the bottle look sad (laughs) i think these victorians were not as prudish as i have been led to believe i don't think that's true (laughs) and their parties would go like these dances would go until six o'clock in the morning and that is a constant 3 a.m 6 a.m they just come home exhausted fall into the bed were the pals were they a part of like the upper crust of society they were that's a really good question they were uh, a part of the upper crust they just didn't have the level of money that the upper crust had, you know, all four grandparents were alive. So there was no estate money coming downstream. And even when it did, their uh, grandparents were wealthy, but each family had 12, 15 kids. So you can take a lot of money. Once you divide a lot of money by 12 or 15 ways, like that money gets small, a lot smaller, pretty quickly. And Charles Law, he was a lawyer. He was educated at Yale, studied the law in Winchester, Virginia, and his law career just never took off. He was not a terribly ambitious man. He was a scholar. He loved to be at home and read, and he loved to think and have conversations with people. So he really found his calling. And I think the women did too, when they opened that school, they were good at it and loved it too. And that's what they did after the war. That's how they supported themselves through the end of their lives. Rebecca Powell founded a school in uh, Alexandria that stood for over 50 years. When they were living in Illinois, they taught Sunday school. And that was the first references I found in their papers about them teaching. 
And I just wonder if there wasn't something about that that clicked. Now, a later letter in the early 20th century from Rebecca in, implies she said somebody convinced her father to open the school in Winchester. She had stayed in touch with Yale University. And so they were asking her questions about her father. And so she, and they kept uh, her answers. So those are all at Yale. And in one of them, she said that he was, uh, somebody convinced him to open a school for girls. And so what we don't know is who that was and why that was and why, why Winchester, oh my gosh, especially on the eve of the, especially since they had such rich connections in Loudoun County and in Alexandria, unless it was just that there was so much competition there that maybe, you know, in Winchester had less competition, perhaps um, there were existing women's schools there, but I don't have all the answers. Unfortunately, their papers go silent when they gather. And so when all the family are together, there's right. letters from that. And so I don't, there's some gaps. And I liked that this one included the names of the enslaved. Right. Robert is the first person she mentions. I have not had a servant in Robert's place. Robert was actually a free man of color. And so he has left Leesburg at this time. We've been able to piece together that free family and who they were. We can't trace them after Leesburg. They have left by 1851. They're gone. And we know that he's left by 1850. And then she mentions Lucinda is somebody that we know from other letters that they are leasing. She is enslaved by somebody else. So she's already not only in a bad situation, but she's been separated from whatever uh, support system she had with the other enslaved people where she was from. Puss is a heartbreaking one. She is a little girl. We know she's little because Mrs. Powell said in the letter that Puss does very well considering she's a year younger than Charlie. So we know how old Charlie is. He's 10 years old. So we know that Puss is nine. So we know a nine-year-old little girl is already uh, being put to work and she's working in the dining room. Ariana is the one that I've been able to identify, meaning I can connect her to records. There's enough other data points for her, like the names of her children, that help me confirm that, yes, this is the same Ariana in these records that is mentioned in these letters. Also, it helps her name's a little unusual. It's not a common name um, in Loudoun County. But what's interesting, she says, um, if only Ariana could assist in the washing, I could do very well. So it's not clear why Ariana is not. Now, I happen to know that she is pregnant. Uh, she's in her first trimester, so she's not very far along, but she is going to have a baby girl in July of this year. Ellen is, is going to be born, but, but it's not clear. And Mrs. Powell doesn't seem inclined to force her for whatever that's worth. She's just like, oh, all shucks. Um, Ariana can't help with the washing, but it did provide some information, you know, for descendants about, you know, what kind of work was Ariana doing in the household? What was she expected to be doing? Um, and who were these other people that formed her support system? How did you identify Ariana? And you mentioned that you were able to find some of her descendants who are still alive today. How did that process go? So I use Ancestry to oh. try to identify people. And one night late, I had come across her name again in, in another letter and decided to give it another shot and just looked for the name Ariana on the 1870 census. And I'd looked before, but her name didn't get recorded quite. It was Her name was written phonetically on the record. And so this time I had a hit for 1870, but there were, she was living with, with a man named Charles Bingham. So there wasn't enough information to know if this is her or not. And I noticed the same woman was on the 1880 census, this time living with granddaughters whose names matched her daughters. So that was intriguing. Um, so she had a daughter named Nancy and a daughter named Ariana, and she had two granddaughters named Nancy and Anna. I went back to take another look at the 1870 census and noticed that, you know, on Ancestry, you can submit corrections to census records that got mistranscribed. Somebody had done that. And I feel like for you to submit a correction, I mean, it's not hard 
but it is kind of next level. Most casual genealogists don't do that. And so that struck me that somebody cared enough to submit a correction to her name and that it's linked to somebody's um, account on Ancestry. So I just sent the person a message and asked, gosh, I'm researching this lady named Ariana. Here's the names of a couple of her children. Cause at the moment, this was a, something I did on a whim and I couldn't remember the names of all of her children off the top of my head. So I named a couple and just asked, do you think we might be researching the same Ariana? And he responded within, I don't know, an hour. And he listed out all the names of the other children. And within that hour, I, cause I was working at the time, I had come across the names of her other children. And it was just one of that, it was a moment where the hair on my neck stood up. Wow. Oh my gosh. But I still, you know, but maybe this is where I pumped the brakes. Cause I thought, you know, I want this to be true. How else can I be sure? Cause the names match, the genders match, the ages match. So almost as if he knew that I was sitting there thinking, gosh, can this really be true? He sent a second message with a death record of another one of her children that didn't fit. And he said, I don't know how this fits into the story because this child was born in Kentucky, which means Ariana was born in Kentucky. And I agreed. I thought, gosh, I don't, I don't know how this fits. Let me think about this. And it took until the next day before I remembered, oh my gosh, the Powells lived in Kentucky for two years. Remember they went from Loudoun to Kentucky and then they came right back. And this just clenched it that they had dragged her with them. Yeah. She had conceived a child, had a baby, and then they brought them back to Loudoun. And this was that child. He lived until 1920. And so this was the death record of that child. And so this was what I needed to be sure. And so then I shared with him the letters that mentioned Ariana so that he could piece that together. And we stayed in touch. You know, I share more information as it comes to light and he shares more information with me as it comes to light. Um, And I'm thankful because I don't think I could have identified her if it hadn't been for the work of her descendants. So I think she advocated for herself in her lifetime because she gets recorded in a fair number of records, which is astonishing. And then he has clearly been advocating for his own genealogy and his family history. And if not for the work of Ariana and his descendant, I could not have pieced that together. It's really difficult when with enslaved ancestors that a lot of times you get like a name in a financial record and that's about all you can find to actually have people mentioned in these family letters is really cool. That's a really cool story. This is the kind of information we can get from these letters. And this was a reason why I picked this one. That and the tale of Uncle Cuthbert. Yeah, so he was Charles Powell's brother, the father's brother. And it's not clear what he had, but he did have some kind of a challenge. So he's in and out of asylum. So he was in Western state for a time. And then according to the family, he escaped and made it back to his home. And his parents were alarmed, but delighted And I went and had those records pulled at the Library of Virginia. And according to Western State, he did not escape. They just released him. So I'm not sure which story is true. (laughs) The family was surprised anyways, which implies they thought he was going to be there longer, that they were not going to release him. Uh, But he could function on his own and sometimes did. And he did attend a Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria. So he was educated as a minister and sometimes worked as a minister. So sometimes he'd be out on his own. Other times he needed supervision. That's what Mrs. Powell is explaining in this letter that he was unhappy there, not ill-tempered, and he was easily managed, she said, but uh, he would meander about and even his own mother became concerned that he needed to be somewhere. So they tried Baltimore and he seemed to like it. He liked the physician, the physician liked him. He didn't stay in the asylum and he didn't live out his life in an asylum. He was kind of in and out. So we don't have enough information to know. And the records from Western State did not shed any light on what it is 
that was keeping him from living the life that his siblings had. The history of Western states really interesting. And, you know, you can go stay there now. It's one of the houses that still <laughs> survives, I guess. Yeah, I, I saw that. It's been converted into an inn. Yeah, that's true. It'll be interesting to see if records survive. I don't know what they don't say what asylum he's in in Baltimore, but there couldn't have been right. that many in 1850. So it'd be interesting to find out which asylum that was and if those records survive and what light that might shed. Uh, he later he marries pretty late in life and was a chaplain in Alexandria. So that's such a huge, I, what I love about this letter is that it's all of this is in there. We have the parties, which are very jolly. <laughs> we have the, the enslaved and the, the window that we can open onto that world. And then we have you know, just the family goings on, health. Uh, we have a contagion that is in Leesburg. We have the smallpox is there. So it's, it's a bit of an action-packed letter, but all of them are like this. Two of the daughters were sent to Gloucester County at this time. They were supposed to visit some relatives for a really short visit, like two weeks. They got stuck for between seven months to a year. It's not real clear when they got back. And it emphasizes, you know, in these Jane Austen books, they always talk about the weather and the roads. And it really brings home how critical that was. That is why they got stuck out there for seven, at least seven months. It may have been as long as a year. Can you imagine some relative comes to visit you? (laughs) And then a year later, they're still there. And the problem was all the stars had to align and they make it clear in these letters, even in this one, when she says, if when you're ready to come home, find somebody who's going to come up in the stage. Cause she can't, even though she's 19 years old and she's fully capable, she's not allowed to travel by herself. And so when she and her sister are out in Gloucester, they have to wait for one of the male relatives to be so inclined to go from Alexandria to Gloucester, which is not a quick trip, or for her uncle to have a reason to go um, into Washington, D.C. or Alexandria. And so that has to happen, and the weather has to be good, and the roads have to be good. Um, So all of that has to align, and it just didn't. And there were so many false starts. There were so many times where they had planned that maybe her father was going to go and get her, but he was a lawyer, so maybe some case came up and he's now got to go to Fauquier County to the courthouse. And so he can't go and get her. And so this kept happening to the point that she had a temper tantrum on the back of one of the letters. She just flipped it over and just lost her mind. Like, well, I guess I live here now. Nobody is going to come and get me. I, I, I'm just stuck here. This is awful. I hate this. And it, you know, Gloucester is delightful, but she really didn't get along very well with her aunt, mm-hmm. Rebecca. I think they both had very strong personalities. Um, also, Mrs. Powell is urging her to please be patient because her aunt Rebecca has lost a baby at wow. that time too. And so there was, you know, she was implying that maybe her aunt Rebecca obviously is going through a lot of trauma and maybe taking that out on her niece, which isn't, it's understandable, but also mm-hmm. not fair. And so that, I think there's some drama that's making this not pleasant for Rebecca. Plus Rebecca doesn't like being away from society. I really think this affected her the rest of her life. For the rest of her life, she never goes anywhere without a locked down exit strategy. (laughs) Even like in Winchester in the war, when they were sending the girls out of town, Rebecca refused to go. And I mean, they're not going to pick her up and lift her into the wagon. So she would win the battle with her parents every single time. And every time I read that she's fighting with her parents about leaving. I'm like, mm, this goes back. All she has to do is look at her mother and be like, hey, remember Gloucester? <laughs> and her mother probably just has to be like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you did get stuck out there for seven months. Oh, that's fascinating. It's good to get to know them from when they're so young and to watch them grow over their life. 
and to see and wonder how some of these events that happened to them earlier in their life affected them later, even when they're toddlers, the parents, just like parents do today, when they put on social media, some crazy thing their kids said, the parents did that too. Then so they'll write down all these little things and Rebecca's personality comes out when she's a toddler and Hattie's pop personality comes out and Lloyd's is the same because I'd gotten to know them as adults. And then to see those little idiosyncrasies of their character coming out when they were very little ages two, three, and four. <laughs> Is it pretty adorable? This is just a fantastic project. Thank you. That's very sweet. Yeah, it has. It's been. It's been a blessing that came out of something that was very traumatic. So I've. I've been lucky that I happened upon it. I've been lucky that these papers were donated to William and Mary in the middle of the 20th century. That William and Mary has taken such good care of them, and they have just been really kind and delightful to me as an outsider who showed up one day. And this is how we do it in the business world. I just thought, you know, I've been transcribing these letters. I wonder if I should go down there and meet them. So I just sent the head of special collections an email. <laughs> I wore a suit. Nice. Just because I don't know how this is done. So I just showed up and was like, hi, I'm Allison. So we just sat down at a conference room table and talked about why I volunteered for this. I think they really didn't know what to do with me at first. <laughs> like, why is this person just showed up at this library? But uh, they've just been really kind and supportive which I appreciate considering how little I knew at the time. I know a lot more now. I've been to the Southern. I follow the academic historians on Twitter so that I can learn. I don't want this project. I want it to reflect the latest scholarship that is available and that to reflect the awesome work that the PhDs and the master's students are doing. I think the Powells deserve that and Ariana certainly deserves that. And so I wouldn't want it to exist in a vacuum. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was an absolute delight. Oh, it was a lot of fun for me. I don't get to geek out about this. Others who do this very often. So as for my listeners, I will link to uh, Allison's project in the show notes and any other resources, any place else you want to point them. I'm happy to put anything on the website. And uh, I am as ever your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.